Are we living in the last days? Again, no doubt you've heard that question. Perhaps you yourself have asked that question. And, and I think that, that, that people, and Christians in particular, they, they ask this question for a host of reasons. Some do so because the question is sort of politically motivated. Others might ask that question because they, they look around and what they see is just sort of from their perspective, moral decline. Others think that we're living in the last days because they see suffering taking place around them or they turn on the news and they see no shortage of, of natural disasters. And so, so these things and a host of others, they sort of spark the question in our minds, are we living in the last days? And the answer, brothers and sisters, is a resounding yes. We are living in the last days, but... Maybe not for the reasons that you think. Allow me to explain. According to the New Testament, the last days are not merely just the last few literal 24-hour days before the end of the world. I realize that many of us might initially think that, but the New Testament tells us a different story. In the words of John Wesley, the last days extend from our Lord's ascension till his coming to judgment. In other words, the last days began when Christ was on the earth, and they will continue until Christ returns to the earth. I know that might sound sort of wonky to some of you, so let me give you some Bible to back that up. Think back to Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. There in Jerusalem is this small, fledging little church and, and out of nowhere, at least from their perspective, Jesus Christ pours out his Holy Spirit. And the evidence of this is that the church at that time begins to speak in tongues. And because they are speaking in tongues, controversy erupts. Some unbelievers begin to shake their finger and say, well, the, the, this is just you guys being drunk. That's why you're speaking a bunch of gibberish. But Peter is quick to correct them. And he does so by appealing to the prophet Joel, who said this, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So you hear that? Joel, from his perspective, he is looking forward to the last days. And what Peter says in Acts 2 is that what Joel looked forward to, the, the last days, it is dawned right here in front of you. And again, this is in Acts chapter 2. This is some 2,000 years ago. Peter is saying, this is the last days. Or consider Hebrews chapter 1. We read, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So according to Hebrews 1, the last days began with Christ. One more. This time, 1 John 2.18. 1 John 2.18. We read, Christian, or rather, children, excuse me, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. 
And while I will grant to you that John uses some slightly different language, he uses last hour as opposed to last days or latter times, I, I think the meaning is no doubt the same. So here's the deal. The last days were experienced by Peter and by the author of the letter to the Hebrews and John and also Paul. I say that because you see the same flavor here in our passage, here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 1, the Holy Spirit is warning that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. And if you just sort of read verse 1 in isolation, the whole thing, it sort of sounds like that what is being described is something that is going to be taking place in some distant future, like, like, like it hasn't happened yet. But by the time you get to verse 3, you see that this departure from the faith, it is in full swing. It's happening. It's happening right now in 1 Timothy 4, in Paul and Timothy's day. So the point not to be missed is this, that in all of these cases, and there are many more, you see that the last days are something that began all the way back in the times of the New Testament, and that they have continued for the last 2,000 years, and that these last days will continue until Christ returns. So when someone asks, are we living in the last days? The answer is yes, of course. That's what the New Testament teaches. And while that's true, I think that's really not what people are getting at when they ask the question, is it? Because they watch the news or they get on Facebook or they read some tweet, and what are they exposed to? Except unparalleled suffering, aggressive dictators, awful violence, horrific diseases, cataclysmic catastrophes. And church, while I have no intention of minimizing any of that, all of that is quite significant. I would have you to notice that none of that is the mark of living in the last days, at least not according to our passage this morning. What is that singular mark of living in the last days? And it's one word. It's the word apostasy. Verse 1 says, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will, here it is, Depart from the faith. That's the warning. That's what marks out, according to 1 Timothy 4, the latter times, the ones of Timothy's day and the ones of our day. Some will depart from the faith. So that raises the question, well, what is this departure? Well, interestingly enough, the Greek word for depart there in verse 1, we get our English word apostatize from it. And what it refers to is someone moving away from a position they once held to. In this case, the faith. So apostasy, church, is when someone who at one point was a professed Christian, now they repudiate the Christian faith. Okay, that's what an apostate is. It's someone who at one point in their life, they said, I'm a Christian, I believe the Christian message, but now for whatever reason, they no longer do. Some of you will perhaps be aware, there's a whole movement out there among 20-somethings, and I think some 30-somethings, but mostly 20-somethings, and it's this movement called deconstructionism. 
It's a bunch of young people who professed faith in Christ when they were younger, but now they get online and they're showing how they all deconstructed, how they no longer affirm the Christian religion. And I bring it up now because while deconstructionism might sort of be one of these cool, trendy words or things that are going on, it's really just apostasy repackaged. It is, to use the language of 1 John 2.19, those who went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, John tells us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were all not of us. In other words, what apostasy reveals, among other things, is who the true disciples of Christ are and who the true disciples are not. I say that because what Scripture teaches is true disciples endure. They persevere. They keep the faith. Their allegiance to Christ is something that continues over the course of their life. It doesn't mean there's not ups and downs. It doesn't mean that there's not ebbs and flows. But it does mean that what separates Christ's sheep from goats is that Christ's sheep continue in the faith. And those that apostatize were never actually truly a part of the faith. Now, this happens, this apostasy, it happens for a host of reasons. People depart from the faith for all sorts of reasons, right? Some do so because they or someone around them has experienced debilitating suffering. Other Christians will depart from the faith because uh, a loved one of theirs has, has died and, and in their mind they can't reconcile how a good and loving God would allow these bad things to happen to them or to someone that they love. You also have scores of professing Christians who turn their back on Christ because their hearts long to worship another God. And by that, I don't mean some little wood thing on the mantle somewhere. We're, we're Westerners. That's not what we worship. Our gods, they don't go up on the mantles, but we have gods nonetheless. So you might repudiate Christ because you want to worship sex or money or power or popularity. But the point is, this apostasy, or as verse 1 calls it, departing from the faith, it's when you have people who at one point in their life said, I'm a Christian, I've been baptized, I'm a part of a church, I partake of the Lord's Supper, I'm a Christian. And then over the course of time, they move to a different position and go, that's not me anymore. I'm no longer a Christian. And that, according to our passage, is the mark of the latter times. So here's the question. How does that happen? What are the dominoes that need to fall that would lead to this? And I would submit to you that in 1 Timothy 3.16, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Paul unfolds the mystery of godliness. Here, he unfolds the mystery of ungodliness. And what he'll have us to see is the source of this apostasy. And what Paul says is that 
This apostasy, it is owing to demons, to deception, and to deadness. Let's look at each. For starters, apostasy has its source in the demonic. Now, I know that might sound over the top. It might be a bit abrasive. It might even come across as close to Halloween as something spooky. But that is what Scripture says. Put your eyes again on verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. How? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And to be clear here, this false teaching, it's not about demons. That's not the thrust. The thrust of the passage is that this is false teaching that originates with demons. It comes up from the pit. That's the point. So teaching, sermons, books, podcasts, stuff that causes people to turn their back on Christ, what the Bible says is that that stuff is demonic. Now again, as sophisticated Westerners, we sort of chuckle at all of this. We sneer at the idea of the supernatural. Angels, demons, come on. We've been so conditioned by our culture that if you can't put it on a scale or if you can't see it underneath of a microscope, then we just assume it's not real. It's, It's a figment of our imagination. But my friends, that is nothing but our pride speaking. The God who made us and our world, he is a spiritual being, and he has made a host of other spiritual beings. And he has revealed to us, I should add, for our good, by the way, he has revealed to us that demons do play a role in unbelief, especially in apostasy. I would remind you of Ephesians 6.12. We are told we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That is to say, not against the the physical, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So make no mistake about it. Church, there is a battle afoot, and it is a spiritual battle, and it is a battle that involves the demonic. And you need to know, demons hate Christ. You know what else demons hate? You. Demons hate you. And demons hate Christians. And part of their mission is to sabotage your faith. Remember how Christ put it in his parable of the sower? What what does the demonic forces do? But they come to steal away the seed of the word that is sown in the hearts of people. So know this, every time someone on a podcast or every time someone on YouTube so-called deconstructs from the faith, you can know this, it is demonic. There are devils at play, but not just devils. There is also, and this brings us to our second source of apostasy, we have to see the role of deception. And when I'm talking about deception here, I'm not talking about the deception of the demons, though that's a reality, but the deception of the false teachers. Put your eyes back on verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says it in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 
Verse 2 now. Through the, here it is, insincerity of liars. And these liars, these are the false teachers. These are the same ones all the way back at first Tim, in, in the beginning of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. These are the same ones who teach different doctrine. It's the same ones who in the very next verse, verse 4, devote themselves not to Christ, but to myths and endless genealogies. In fact, you may even remember back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, two of these false teachers are named, Hymenaeus and Alexander. So in Timothy's day, these are the apostates that I should add. Such apostates are alive and well today. These would be those same ones who claim that Christians ought not to trust their Bibles. These are those who so doubt when it comes to the Word of God. They profess the Bible to be Scripture, but then out of the other side of their mouth, they decry anything about its sufficiency or clarity or authority or necessity. We see them today when they question the very exclusivity of Jesus Christ and suggest that there are those who have never heard the gospel that will somehow escape the wrath of God for their sin and have their sins forgiven. And if you ask such folks how that happens, well, they will tell you that those who have never heard the gospel, they somehow get to heaven by trusting in their, quote-unquote, inner light. You have to understand, church, that by doing that, they are neutering the very gospel itself. If people can have their sins forgiven and go to heaven apart from the cross of Christ, then the cross of Christ is not necessary. We are also enamored with cults who name the name of Christ, but they reject very basic and fundamental Christian teaching. Those friendly people who ride bikes and knock on your door, they flatly deny that Christ is truly God and that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. There are also many so-called churches and ministers who blaspheme the name of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. They do this by offering what Leviticus 10.1 calls strange fire as part of their worship. If you've ever been in these contexts, what quickly happens is that Christ is reduced to nothing more than a genie in a bottle. And if you rub him the right way, or if you give enough money, or if you sow your seed, or if you speak in tongues, if you have enough faith, if you, if you, if you, if you, then you can pretty much get whatever you want. Christ is reduced to a vending machine, and the gospel to basically you becoming your own God and deciding what you want. We also see this same deception rampant today by so many who refuse to call sin, sin. Love is love, we are told, whatever that means. And therefore, because love is love, abortion is health care, homosexuality should be celebrated, and transgenderism should be affirmed. And if you suggest otherwise, then it is quite clear that you don't actually know the God of love. So we are told. 
In a related vein, the seeker-sensitive model, the the attractional churches, you, you know the ones I'm talking about. They make everything a show, and they do all that they can to just get bums in the seats. Well, that's often at the expense of truth. In an effort to fill chairs, the offense of the gospel is blunted. There's never a call for repentance. Sin is never made explicit. There's nothing about conforming to the law of God. And in all of this, people are inoculated to the truth. And so we sit back and we scratch our heads. Well, where does all of this come from? Well, back to verse 2. In so many cases, through the insincerity of liars. Again, these are false teachers. As Jesus would say, these are wolves in sheep's clothing. And so often, these are the ones who are spreading their devilish doctrines. Now, to clarify, the word that the ESV translates there as insincerity, we get our English word hypocrite from it. The original word, as you may know, comes from the Greek theater. It means to assume a role in a dramatic production, to to play a part. So the point is this. These false teachers, they know what they are doing. Sometimes we think that they are innocent, that they are mistaken, that, that maybe they're sort of being carried along against their will, sort of totally oblivious to the whole thing. And while those, are, th- th- those situations might no doubt exist, what Scripture tells us is that these false teachers are actively participating in it. They are evil. They are hypocritical liars. Again, they, they know in this part of the production to put on this mask and to play this part. And then over here, they put on this mask and play another part. Which means that they know the lingo, don't they? They know the songs that we sing. They know the Christian subculture. They use words like Christ or faith or grace. They just redefine them. The point is they know how to put a mask on. They know how to look the part. But what our passage tells us is that they are liars. They are hypocrites. They're not sincere. They know that what they are preaching and teaching and blogging about and posting on social media and putting on Twitter, they know that it is a deviation from the very word of God. They just don't care. They're like the 19th century influential Anglican Benjamin Jowett. The story goes that he would go to chapel and in front of the faculty and in front of all of the students, he would recite the Apostles' Creed with everybody in attendance. Except the Apostle Creed goes, at least it begins, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And so the story goes that Benjamin Jowett would very, very boldly begin a thing, I, and then he would whisper to himself, used to. And then he very quickly, I used to believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. My friends, this is nothing but shameful. It's destructive. It's deceptive. And this is so many of our false teachers today. There's still a third source of apostasy, though, and that is deadness. Keep following along in verse 2, because we read, through the insincerity of liars, whose consciences are what? They're seared. 
They're seared, Scripture says. This is a graphic picture. We might think of a wound that someone receives on the battlefield. Think of the soldier who has been hit with a bullet, and the the bullet has gone clean through, but, but he's still losing too much blood. And so what has to happen? Well, that wound needs to be cauterized. And in the process, the, the skin surrounding it, all of the, all of the nerve endings, they will be burned to the point that, that it's all rendered insensitive. And that's really the picture, brothers and sisters, that's being painted here. In fact, we actually get our English word cauterize from the Greek word that Paul uses. And that's exactly what happens to the conscience. It becomes burned. It gets to a point where it's unfeeling. That's why I'm calling this deadness this morning. Because through sin, the conscience is rendered dead. It's just unresponsive. Now, to be clear, we all have a conscience. This is part of you and I being made in the image of God. And our, our conscience, it is intended to act as something like a moral compass. But our conscience, our moral compass, it serves us well. It's only reliable insofar as it is in accord with the truth of God's Word. Which means... A seared conscience is a defunct moral compass. In this case, the voice of reason has been drowned out. Again, it's unfeeling. It's no longer sensitive to right and wrong, truth and falsehood, righteousness and unrighteousness. It's been cauterized. And this is what sin and false teaching, and pseudo-gospels, and bootleg Christs do, right? They sear our consciences. Think of it like like this. Our discernment antenna gets busted. Our moral radar becomes wonky. Our once clear thinking is now fuzzy. Think of it this way. What used to make us blush... Well, it doesn't anymore. And before long, people find themselves abandoning Christ, the same Christ that they once professed to adore. Church, this is all the source of apostasy. And, and here's, how it, here's how it works, if I, if I can put it that way. Here's how the dominoes fall. Are, are you ready? This is how you get to apostasy. It begins with people turning a deaf ear to their conscience. That's where it starts. That twinge, that conviction, that poking in your soul, it gets ignored. And every time you do that, it just gets easier to ignore it the next time, and the next time, and the next time. And eventually, the Titanic hits an iceberg. But when we silence our consciences, you'd better believe that we do hear something. We don't become deaf. We hear something different. And that something is hypocritical liars. 
All of a sudden, what used to make us shake our heads, now we are nodding. We find ourselves listening to and and reading about and taking in and engaging with stuff that we never thought we would. At this point, the Titanic is taking on water. This then leads to further influence from the demonic. The conscience is seared, and therefore, at this point, the head and heart is in full force rejection of the very truth of God's Word. At this point, we find ourselves, perhaps even unwittingly, stiff-arming Christ and embracing that which is anti-Christ. To return to our metaphor, the Titanic is now sinking. What this all eventually and inevitably leads to is the professing Christian ditching the Christian faith altogether. And when that happens, the Titanic is now resting on the ocean floor. Now, let me be quick to add, when people do apostatize from the faith, when they give up on Christ, it is rarely rarely for some deeply philosophical conundrum. It's not some thorny intellectual argument that trips them up. It's not a Bible verse or a Bible doctrine that they stumble over. You know what it is? It's always the same thing. It's sin. That's always where it starts, and that's always where it ends. It always is sin. But more specifically, Apostasy is the result of a particular type or kind of sin. For example, people walk away from Christ because of a fear of man. People walk away from Christ because they want to sleep around. Or they want to chase the American dream. Or they want to appear respectable in society. You see, it's sin, but it's always a type of sin. It's this idea that, well, I don't want my friends at school to find out that I'm a Christian. It's it's the idea, well, I really like this guy, and I know he's not a Christian, but, but he's a good person, so I choose him over Christ. It's, I'd rather have a nice house, a boat, three cars, and take sweet vacations. And if that means that I don't have time for Christ, then so be it. Maybe in our day and age, particularly for younger people, it's this idea that I don't want to be labeled as some fundamentalist Puritan who believes that God actually created us male and female, that he actually defines marriage, and that sexual sin is, well, sexual sin. And so people depart from the faith. And what I want you to hear is this, people depart from the faith Because they love their sin more than they love their Savior. That's really what apostasy is. That's what it does. It robs our affections from Christ and holds a carrot out in front of us. So we chase it instead. Now, with that groundwork laid, I want us to take note of the form or shape of the apostasy. Specifically in Timothy's day, what did it look like? And as we prepare to answer that, know this, without fail, 
the womb of apostasy always births disobedience. Disobedience to God, disobedience to His law, and disobedience to His gospel. You can be assured of that. You can know that for all the various shapes and forms that apostasy takes, it will always have this in common. It is rebellion to God's word. And you see this quite clearly in our passage. Most notably, verse 3. Because we read, speaking of these false teachers, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving, by those who believe and know the truth. Christian, I want you to notice, there's no mention here of anyone denying Christ's divinity. The issue doesn't appear to be that the false teachers attacked the sinless life of Christ or His substitutionary death on the cross or His resurrection from the dead or any of that. There's no mention that these false teachers tried to, tried to, to, to get funny business with sola fide or anything like that. But what do you see? A requirement to abstain. To abstain from marriage and to abstain from meat. They preached, you ought not to get married and you ought not to eat these types of foods. Now, just so we're all on the same page, you can be a faithful Christian and remain single or unmarried. It's called celibacy. And it appears to be actually a gift, one that Paul himself advocates for in 1 Corinthians 7. And believe it or not, this is the part that most challenges my thinking, you can be a faithful Christian and be a vegan at the same time. I know that it sounds crazy, but it is somehow, by the grace of God, possible. So the issue here in 1 Timothy 4 is not, I repeat, not that someone decides to give up marriage or to give up a particular food. The issue is when that is made a test of orthodoxy. And that appears to be what the false teachers were doing. They were saying, if you really want to please Christ, if you really want to go to heaven, if you really want to be like super spiritual, then you need to make sure Jesus is good, Jesus is great, he died for your sins, he got up from the dead, that's all true. But if you really want the good stuff, don't get married and don't eat meat. The problem with such a view, you ask? Well, there are several, for starters, and we'll see this fleshed out in a moment even more. Marriage and meat are good gifts from God. They're good gifts. And what tends to happen is to deny them is to not only deny the gift, but also to deny the benevolent giver. And that is a massive problem, one that has tons of downstream effects. Another problem in this line of thinking is it very quickly undercuts the gospel. Let me ask you, how is one made right in God's sight? What is the source of the Christian's righteousness? Is it their marital status? Is it what's on their menu? Of course not. The sole ground of our righteousness the only source of righteousness that we have as Christians is Christ and Christ alone. 
who he is and what he has done. That's where we build our lives. That's what we rely on. That's what we trust in. We trust in Christ's perfection, his substitutionary death, his spilled blood, his triumphant resurrection. As Christians, our creed is Christ and Christ alone. And if you, even for a split second, start thinking that your marital status or your menu has anything to do with your standing before God, then you are already looking at undercutting the gospel. And I mean you're looking at it in the rearview mirror. The final problem, if those first two weren't enough, is equally damning. This form of asceticism, This idea of self-denial, specifically of things that God has declared to be good. When we start denying ourselves of these things, it doesn't take long for us to get a fat head and a bony finger. How quick do we begin to look down upon others? How quick until we begin to think that we are better than them? And that is because very quickly, our self-denial, it becomes a source of self-righteousness. And so please hear me, Christian. When self-righteousness is entered into the equation, the act is already laid to the tree of the gospel. Self-righteousness is utterly deadly. And it is utterly deadly because it pulls you inward when you are supposed to look outward. It puts the accent on self rather than the Savior. You begin to boast in the person in the mirror rather than the Christ on the cross. This is why self-righteousness always breeds pride. And also, as our brother Jimmy read from Philippians 2, why the purity of the gospel always breeds pride. Humility. If you're standing before God, if your forgiveness of sins, if you're going to heaven, if it has anything to do with you, whether 1% or 99%, if it has anything to do with you, then you should be proud. But if it has 100% to do with Christ and Christ alone, then you should be humble. And so this is what was happening in Timothy's day. These hypocritical liars whose consciences were seared and whose teaching was demonic, they were promoting a brand of self-righteousness. And what I want you to see is that self-righteousness is the shape of apostasy. That's the form, the look that it takes. This is why people eventually walk away from Christ. Why? Because they deceive themselves into thinking, that they no longer need Christ. They begin to think that they are self-righteous. When in reality, Christ is the most treasured and valuable and glorious person in all of existence. So how do we protect against this? What is our shield as Christians from apostasy? Well, Let me give you three practical ways, all of which arise from our passage. First, be unrelenting in your allegiance to the Word of God. Do you see what Paul did there in this passage to combat the false teachers? 
We read those who, verse 3, forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. What, what does Paul say? He says, well, wait a minute. That's not what God's word says. You ever notice how Paul always sounds like some backwoods fundamentalist appealing to the book of Genesis? But that's what he says. In verse 4, he says, For everything created by God is good. And what Paul is doing here is he's making an appeal to the Word of God. He's making an appeal, actually, to Genesis chapter 1. Because in Genesis chapter 1, what are we told? We are told that creation was good, 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 six times. And then, at the end of chapter 1, creation is very good. And so as soon as these false teachers come in and start saying, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad, Paul says, hold up. I know what the Bible says. These things are good. Marriage is good. God's Word says so. Meat is good. God's Word says so. G.K. Chesterton once quipped, heresy is truth gone mad. He went on to say, every heresy is a truth pressed to the exclusion of every other truth. And that's exactly what those in Timothy's day had done, isn't it? So your shield against this sort of stuff is to stick to the Word of God and to stick to all the Word of God. To be joyfully content to read and to memorize and to love and to obey God's Word. As the 1689 London Baptist Confession puts it, speaking of God's word, the whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. So, When some charismatic charlatan comes to you with anything that is not explicitly stated or is not by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures, tell that man or woman to take a hike because your allegiance is to the Word of God, not the words of men. And that allegiance will guard you from apostasy. Second, be unrelenting in your thanksgiving to the Father. Paul tells us in verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For, verse 5, it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So Paul is saying, marriage, meet all of this stuff, receive it with thanksgiving. So brothers and sisters, Shield yourself from apostasy by receiving joyfully and thankfully all the good gifts that your Father in heaven bestows upon you. Church, hear me well. Marriage is good. Meat is good. Music is good. Beer is good. Beauty is good. Fellowship is good. Church is good. Worship is good. Work is good. Liberty is good. God is good. So eat the fat and drink the sweet. Get married. Make love. Have lots of babies. 
Celebrate and dance and sing and drink and feast and do all to the glory of God and give thanks to God every step of the way. This is one of the ways that we shield ourselves from apostasy. We cultivate a heart of thanksgiving. Which means that a stingy, ungrateful, and unthankful heart must be repented of. And it must be repented of not just because it is evil, but because such a heart is downright dangerous to your soul. So be unrelenting in your allegiance to the word of God. Be unrelenting in your thanksgiving to the Father. And finally, be unrelenting in your resting in Christ. Fight tooth and nail against any temptation to rest in yourself. That is what apostasy does, at least in the end, right? It takes your eyes off of Christ. You depart, verse 1, from the faith. Beloved, you depart from Christ. So don't move. Abide in Him. Rest in Him. Don't chase the siren songs of the world, the flesh, or the devil. Rather, cling to Christ. And as you cling to Him, know that Christ is clinging to you. This is why He shed His blood. This is why Christ gave himself for you on Calvary's tree. He did so so that you'd look at him and not yourself. He did so that you'd trust in him, not yourself. He did so that you would find Christ utterly sufficient to take all your sins away, past, present, and future, and to know that Christ will complete what he started. So rest in him, brothers and sisters. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would shield us from what we see taking place in your word here, and if we're honest, what we see taking place in the world around us. We want to be those who build our lives upon your word and who give thanks to you and who are resting completely and entirely in your son. So do a work of grace in our lives such that we would see Christ afresh, that we would adore him, that we would love him, that our hearts and affections would be drawn toward him and that we would have our eyes on no one or nothing other than your, your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.